0: Good morning, I have been rather amazed at how timely Paul's letter to the Philippians is to our time, to the Visalians, and to Grace Community Church. Uh, Today we're in part three, chapter one, verses 27 through 30, I'd like to read it. And I hope you have your Bible or your smartphone open and can read it with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have." Look closely at verse 27. Do you see it? There are two words missing. In the English Standard Version, It reads like this, and I'm going to put the two words in there. Let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's how it sounds in the New International Version. Conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Those two words, as citizens, they are the theme of our entire series, and these four verses right here are the centerpiece, focus, and major point of Paul's letter to the Philippians. He uses this expression again in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, our citizenship is is in heaven. Are you a citizen? Born and raised in the United States? Are you proud to be an American? Do you stand for our national anthem? Do your eyes gleam with tears when we sing God bless America? When our stars and stripes are on parade, when we pledge allegiance or hear the repeat of a 21-gun salute, is this land of the free and home of the brave our land? If we are patriots, we are Philippians. Our Apostle Paul is speaking to us, and as he speaks to us, he speaks to us as citizens even as he wrote to the Philippians as citizens of Rome. He writes as a citizen of Rome, two citizens of Rome who by birth Enjoy the rare and prized distinction of Roman citizenship. The world wanted what Paul had and the Philippians had. Just as today, the world wants what we enjoy. Citizenship in the United States of America. Residency in America. To be a part of the U.S. of A. But Paul's talking to us not about citizenship on earth. He's talking to us about allegiance to Jesus Christ. And it is so clear that a generation later, Polycarp, I know that's a funny sounding name, but Polycarp, an early Christian leader who was from Smyrna, Wrote to these very Philippians, drawing upon and echoing the language of Paul right here that we've read. If we please Christ, he writes, in this present world, we will receive the world to come as well, since he promised that he will raise us from the dead and If we show ourselves to be citizens worthy of him, we will also reign with him, if that is, we continue to believe. And a generation after Polycarp, a Christian writing to Diognetus, a man who wanted to know more about this Christian faith and what it means to be a Christian, He wrote this, among other things, Christians live in both Greek and barbarian cities as each one's lot was cast. You know, the luck of birth, people say. And they follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. At the same time, They demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents, as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not abort their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone. And by everyone, they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life, they are using the very words that Paul uses here in verse 27 of chapter one, as citizens, behave as citizens. And as he uses in chapter three, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. That's why as citizens, Paul wants us to stand worthy of our true citizenship. The Philippians and the Visalians, those of us at GCC, have dual citizenship. The Philippians had citizenship as Roman citizens and as citizens of heaven. Citizenship in heaven is citizenship in the kingdom of God. Lately, as I wash my hands, in fact, I think I mentioned it last Sunday. You know, they say, wash your hands for 20 seconds. I guess it's to kind of keep you occupied. Sing Jingle Bells or sing Happy Birthday. Well, I've sung the Lord's Prayer. But when I started the first one or two times, I did it really without thinking. I just kind of rattled it off. Our Heavenly Father, you know, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the, with the second and then the third time, it, it really started to sink in. Now I pray it this way Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is to say, as it is in the kingdom, your kingdom. Things change in our thinking, in our affiliations and our allegiances. When we have a king and we recognize we are subjects of a king, the king is the Lord, our God and they change because we realize that our true allegiance and our true citizenship belongs to that kingdom and that king. Today, March 29th is the anniversary of my marriage to Shelley. Yay. 46 years. But my allegiance to Jesus Christ came before and remains premier to my allegiance to Shelley. Wonderfully, my allegiance to her and her allegiance to me are not opposed. Jesus comes first because Jesus is first. Because I strive to stand worthy of my allegiance to Jesus Christ my allegiance to Shelley stands strong and hers for me. Our heavenly citizenship alters any earthly citizenship. Marriage to Christ alters any earthly marriage, any affection, any alliance, any association, any membership, any partnership, participation, position, union, guild, club, team, office, uniform, badge. Those words point to responsibilities that characterize chunks and parts of our lives. Our society assigns Them status. And with status comes pride. Pride of position. And with pride, we enthrone ourselves. And we dethrone the Christ who is Lord over all. When we take the throne, we run things our way. The selfish way. The my way or the highway way. We confuse doing it my way with doing it in the name of Jesus. Sometimes I think we get these citizenships so confused that we do things and then we kind of slap slap a, a name tag on it, Jesus. We follow our heart not his, and then we label it Jesus' will. We hallow our name with the name of Jesus in order to do our will instead of his will in our kingdom instead of his kingdom for our bread instead of his bread for our sin and our temptation. And if our sin and our temptation gets in the way of what we really want, Well, then we pray the Lord's prayer and we ask his forgiveness. And we slap his name on what we've chosen to do anyway. And then we go right back to doing what we were. Are we citizens of heaven? Where is heaven in your life? If our answer is heaven is everywhere I am not, then we are citizens in name only. And that is what Paul is speaking to. That is what Paul wants us to address. That's his grave concern for the Philippians. That when he's away, or he's not with them, or he becomes a memory, in the struggle for Jesus Christ, as a citizen above his Roman citizenship to Christ. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit. I hope you're revved up thinking about this. I hope you're saying to yourself, I'm ready to stand worthy, to stand united in one spirit, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, to share together in the suffering of Christ. And we should. But here's the deal. Even as I passionately state this, I know I fall short of it. It's my great desire to be that better version of myself in all ways. You need to know there are days, and you'll know these for your own life. I know them in mine. There are days as a citizen of heaven mindful of heaven, mindful of the true king and his kingdom, waving his flag, singing his anthem, following his example and his commands. And in the midst of it, it's a struggle that you don't expect. It's a struggle to enthrone Jesus as king instead of Caesar with dual citizenship, with our feet on the ground and our lives immersed in the life of our upbringing and our citizenship in the United States of America. That's the struggle of dual citizenship. Paul knows it too. He does. He's the one who talks about it quite frequently. In Romans chapter 8, in Galatians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians. It's called the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's the battle of citizenships. And that's why Paul says in verse 27, I want to hear one thing and one thing only, whether I'm with you or I'm not. I want to hear you stand in one spirit. And that one spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ. That one spirit is the reality of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, indwelling and empowering us. In the spirit, we stand. In the spirit, we become one. And we become united because the spirit is the Lord. Without the Spirit, we cannot even utter the words, says Paul, Jesus is Lord. He says that in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. We don't misplace the Spirit, we don't escape the Spirit, we don't lose the Spirit. But we do, Paul says, grieve it. We do quench it. And the Spirit is yearning to work within our lives to make us increasingly Christ-like right in the realities of our daily life. At home, at work, at school, wherever we are. In the midst... Of what are hardships, we have Christ's Spirit to direct and empower us. It is the Spirit whose thoughts we are to think, says Paul in Romans 8, verses 4, 5, and 6. It is the Spirit's walk we are to walk, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. In fact, it is the Spirit's influence that is to be greater in our life than all others. Even wine, Paul says. That's the living and driving under the influence that the Scripture recommends in Christ. The Spirit is our ID, our identification, our passport. Our official papers of heavenly citizenship. In chapter one of Ephesians verses 13 and 14, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 and chapter 5 of that same second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5 verse 5, Paul says, "The Holy Spirit is our bone, the pledge of God to us, of our destiny, our inheritance, our direction. Which is to be Christ-like. The Spirit is a foretaste. The Spirit, well, the Spirit is much greater. But when you walk through Costco or used to walk through Costco, you know we could eat lunch just getting uh, samples. The Spirit is a sample of the life to come, of the resurrection life of the work that God wants to do in our lives. And it's a growing work that will be consummated in the resurrection. But that spirit is ours now. Day before yesterday, on Friday, I went to the pharmacy to get a shot in both arms. Yeah, I can hardly move. Still sore. So I had to see two or three people every time I went to a different member of the pharmaceutical staff they said what's your birthday what's your birthday it's a way of verifying who I am the Holy Spirit is our birthday in Christ because the Spirit occupies our lives when we take Jesus Christ to be our Lord and our Savior Stand united in one spirit. Here, in your living room, wherever you are, we are joined in a common one else when we are in the spirit. Whether anyone else knows it from the church, if you're in a situation with your spouse or your child or your parent or your friend, let Christ take over. Let the spirit have his way in you. What would Jesus do? The Spirit will empower you to do that very thing. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verses 27 and 28. We contend for the faith, not against those who oppose us. That's not what the contending or the striving is about. Because these notions of contending and striving... It's the word "athleo." it means to wrestle, to engage in battle. We're not battling any adversaries. We're battling for our faith, the faith that we have in the gospel, which is our trust, our belief in God's word to us in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, that's faith in God's faithfulness, our response to his word and to his work in our lives. Inspire anyone. Inspiring Christ's likeness. We can't inspire anyone if we're just living the way we've always done it. As if we didn't even know Jesus. Or he was too far away to access. He's within us. His royal Lordship lives in us. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Do you know what that means? That means he's really serious about this. He wants the Philippians to manifest the reality of Jesus Christ in their lives. And they do that by trusting him taking him at his word, stepping out in risk. And, of course, what's a risk to me is going to be different than a risk to you. Wherever our faith starts to falter, and we become frightened and shrink back. That's the parameter. That's the territory of our faith. And Jesus is always going to be calling us a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. And so often, that's when we shrink back. If we would step out, what to us seems risky, but it's for Christ's sake, we will grow in our faith. Our confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ will become surer, and we will stand in real strength. Not just in words. Not just on a day of the week. Day in and day out as we let Christ be Lord of our lives. Paul uses citizen language of the arena and the battlefield and things that were familiar to citizenry. Those who had a stake in the land, in the city, who had a heritage, he says. Give no ground. Strive or contend. Battle, struggle. I mentioned athleto. You can hear it. Athletic. We get our word athlete. Be an athlete. Athletics from this very word. But Paul puts a preposition on the front of that very common, very familiar word. He puts the preposition together. Strive together. I love the translations side by side, in unison, united. How do we do that? We can't all be together, but we can stand and strive for our faith wherever we are. It's the same challenge that we face, and we face it together wherever we are when we do it in and for the name of Jesus Christ. Here's another word he uses, unafraid, in verse 28. It's a rare word. doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament in the Greek version, but it's used of horses. Horses in battle, for example, when they get spooked. Paul says when we're striving for this faith, think of a team sport where you are all in and you're in it together. The last thing you do is turn and run. Don't be spooked. Don't panic, Paul says. Trust the Lord. Those are words for our time too. The word suffering in verse 29, that's another word of contending and battling because there's always suffering. If it's worth doing, it's worth paying the price. Anything this value is worth suffering for. And in antiquity, there was always suffering. There was always cost. There was always sacrifice. And Paul doesn't shrink from that. He says, it's our privilege to suffer for the name of, for the sake of Christ. In this conflict. Verse 30, he uses the word conflict. agone. Agon is the Greek word. We get our word agony from that word. An agon is a contest. It can be a battle. It can be a conflict, as some of the translations render it. Paul's in Rome. The Philippi- Philippians are in Philippi. We're in Visalia. You're in your homes. We're here. But we can be serving the Lord, contending for the faith of the gospel and we'll all be serving and contending together. This we do in the power of the Holy Spirit. Share together in the suffering of Christ, Paul says in verse 29 and 30. Paul ran into Jesus the very first time on the Damascus Road. He was startled, to say the least. Jesus called him Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Paul replied, and Jesus said, I'm the Jesus you persecute. I am the Jesus you persecute. Jesus knows our suffering. We know him because he suffered. We're not exempt. Our faith shines in suffering, especially in a sin broken world of empty and false hopes and dreams. It's a gift of God. In in this verse, Paul actually uses that word, a gift of God's grace. That's kind of over translating it, but it's the word to show grace. In some cases, it can mean to forgive. In the next chapter, in verse 9, it's used of Jesus. He is bestowed. It's translated bestowed. It's a, a grant. And what is that grant? The name which is above every name. Paul puts the grant of suffering within the grace of God. Now, I'll tell you why I think that is. Among other things, it's an honor and a privilege that sometimes in our culture we shrink from. And I understand that. We're all in this together. But we need to start developing the ability to stand for what we believe and be prepared to suffer if it calls for it. But know this, and whenever we step out in faith, whenever we step out in faith and it leads to suffering, the Holy Spirit is with us, and he is our provision in ways that we do not realize, that he shows up and gives us in the conditions of those situations. God gives us grace, his provision. 2 Timothy 1.7 Paul says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but has given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound judgment. Polycarp, who wrote to the Philippians, some years later, he refused to swear allegiance to Caesar. The magistrate in the province where they arrested him and all of his, some of his friends tried to talk him out of it. You know, just just kind of go through the motions. Save your life. They loved him. They didn't want to see him die over what they thought was kind of a mechanical, trivial sort of thing, but not to Polycarp. The magistrate said to Polycarp, Swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile Christ. And Polycarp replied, For For 86 years I have been his servant. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Early church historian Eusebius described not just a pestilence, not just an epidemic, but a famine at the same time in his own time. It swept through the Roman Empire in 312 and 313. Far from fleeing the cities or shutting off their homes from others, Eusebius describes the Christians tirelessly, tending to the dying and to the burial of others. Those who had no one to care for them. Others gathered to the Christians where they distributed bread and shared what they had. And what was the result? Eusebius reports, because of their Christian sympathy and humanity, their actions were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. As citizens, stand worthy. It's a simple step. Step into the power and control of the Holy Spirit. Not just once, not just on special occasions. When you're weak, when you're caught off guard by temper or mistreatment or your own selfishness, your own aspirations for things that God is not ready to give you or whatever it is, step into the power and control of the Holy Spirit, and you will stand and stand worthy as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Last Sunday morning, I record uh, Sunday morning. (laughs) That's the name of it. It's on CBS. It's an hour and a half show, and then I watch it at a later time. They interviewed David Oshinsky, who just published a book called Bellevue, three centuries of medicine and mayhem at America's most storied hospital. It's America's oldest public hospital. It's a hospital that's renowned because it turns no one away, whether they can pay or not. It treats all their patients with compassion. It kind of got tagged for a mental institute when they were the first in the nation to start a program for mental health and psychiatry. But the fact of the matter is when David Oshinsky was being interviewed, they the interviewer asked him, where does that spirit, that motto come from where did that develop that idea that none will be turned away everyone is welcome all are treated with dignity and compassion and David Oshinsky said it's because of Bellevue's first doctor Alexander Anderson at the end of the 17th century the 18th and the 19th century, late 1700s and 1800s, he was working at the hospital. He was the first doctor, official doctor. There was an outbreak of yellow fever. First his son died, then his mother and his father, then his wife, and then his brother, all within six weeks, according to Oshinsky. And what happened to Alexander? Did he... Did he pack up shop? Quit? Oshinsky says no. Alexander and his words are he stayed the course because he knew, he believed, he was sure it was God's will. Christians don't run. When they walk in the Spirit, they stand strong, they stand for the faith of the gospel. They live out that Christ-likeness in a foreign land for their true home is citizenship in heaven. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, these are hard things to, sometimes when we're so immersed in our culture, in our society, in our upbringing, it's just secondhand. But to realize who we are in Christ is a growing thing, and your spirit aids us. And we pray for that. We pray that we might grow in our faith and grow in the strength of our faith as we trust you in the little steps we take in Jesus' name. And it is in his matchless name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. We love you. God bless you. Hugs. See you next Sunday.